reflect on the nature of authentic and authenticating faith, which we are um, bypassing. We looked at that a little bit last spring. And so then we come into chapter 22. The question is, well, if it is true that the king has arrived and if it is true that he has legitimate authority and if it's true that we recognize that by authentic and authenticating faith, how then shall we live? The peacemaking, purifying king of justice has arrived and seized his throne. Matthew's gospel is intent on wanting us to hear. Matthew is passionate that we hear that. For Matthew, this is an urgent message of life and death. It seems that it's an urgent message of life and death for the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit has preserved it for us to this day. Matthew is saying that his kingdom has come and his will is being done upon the earth even as it is in heaven. We see this, we know this, we enter into it, we participate in it by faith. Authentic and authenticating faith. Assuming that one has recognized and responded to the king with such faith, the question then arises, how am I to live in the kingdoms of this world as a faithful citizen of the preeminent king and his kingdom? The beginnings of faithfully and fruitfully answering that question depend in large measure on our understanding of the king and especially the scope and the nature of his vision for his kingdom. To prolong it, if, for example, this king is in fact content to fill a little space if we be satisfied, then that will affect how we conceive of living faithfully as citizens of such a king with such a vision of his kingdom. Or, alternatively, if the king is content to rule over a personal, privatized, pietistic sphere democratically seeking to please his constituency while seeking compromise with competing voices in a pluralistic society, that too will deeply shape how we walk with this king and serve him faithfully as we live among the kingdoms of this world. But a third option is if the king of such a kingdom insists, as offensively as he does, if he insists that that it is all his, if it's true, as Paul asserts, that by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things 
hold together the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Well then, that trumps everything. That will necessarily rearrange and reapportion the ways that we understand and seek to live faithfully as citizens of such a king in such a kingdom as we sojourn among the kingdoms of this world. Matthew wants us to know that since King Jesus and his kingdom is preeminent, is eternal, is loving, and living, living faithfully as citizens in that kingdom will require changed allegiances, values, and relationships. To get at this, Matthew records for us four questions and four answers. Three are questions that are asked of Jesus, and one is a question that is asked by Jesus. Read with me then Matthew chapter 22, verses 20, verse 15 through the end of the chapter. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. So tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. So they brought him a denarius, and Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Well, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to, Caesar's, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard of it, they marveled. They left him and went away. Now, on that same day, Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, having no, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second, and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven... Whose wife will she be? For they all had her. And Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. 
And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, and the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of our king to us, his people. In 21st century Flintstone, Georgia. Let's go to him in prayer. And so, Father, we come because you have given to us your Son, Jesus Christ. You have given to us your Spirit. You have given to us this, your Word. And although we see it in words and in language and in grammar and in syntax that we use every day, yet we need the help of your Spirit to hear it rightly to hear it as the word of the living God and the loving God, our Father God. And so as your children in Jesus, we pray that you would do that. We pray that you would feed us upon the truth of your glory, the glory of your love. Father, that you would protect us from error for we come in Jesus. Amen. Does anybody know who designs these tissue boxes? Because if you could talk to the engineers who designed these things, I'd be much obliged. The times, so we were told, in the late 60s are a-changing. And if they were changing then, what's going on now? Not only has the change not uh, slowed down or diminished, it is actually seems that it has actually grown in breadth and in depth and in height and in length. And it feels like it's gotten a whole lot faster. A lot of people have made that observation. Those things are true in general. We can talk about those things as we experience them in all manner of ways. But for us in this room, there is an increasingly visible gap that is emerging between the values of our culture, the values of the kingdom in which we are called to live, and the values of Christ's kingdom in which we are citizens. And the gap has always been there. But in the last 50 years, in our context, it has been increasingly visible and increasingly dangerous. In recent years, the disconnects have become undeniable. And brothers and sisters, if you are not feeling the pressure of that increasing disconnect upon you and your family and your faith and your 
life of faith, and it is likely that you are in the thrall of the culture and are being blissfully swept along in its current. For you see, the disconnect is forcing us to ask more and more urgently, how are we to live and love faithfully as followers of Jesus in the kingdoms of this world? This is true in politics, is true in economics, is true in education, is true in society in general. How are we to live and love faithfully as followers of Jesus in the kingdoms of this world? How are we to live faithfully as citizens of Christ's kingdom while we sojourn as residents in the kingdoms of this world? How are we to see and understand our relationship and responsibility to the authorities and power structures that be? How are we to faithfully count our days and so prioritize the stewardship and distribution of our resources? How are we to be faithful in the worldwide web of relationships in which we find ourselves? Of course, these questions have always been at the very foundation of faithfully living as God's people among the nations. And perhaps each generation has felt the urgent press of the question upon them. It is certain that Matthew's generation did. But it seems to me that the need for us, especially as North American Christians... To be self-consciously asking and answering these questions of one another. Every day. When we sit in our houses, when we walk by the way, when we lie down, when we rise up. Is particularly urgent for us as the people of the risen and now reigning Jesus today in our time, in our place. Which is, of course why we have catechisms. Catechisms, some of you may be aware, and others others of you may not be aware, catechisms are a teaching tool, a discipleship tool, a disciple-making tool. And it follows a question-and-answer format. And it asks all the basic questions and provides the answers so as to shape one's passions, so as to shape one's vision, so as to shape one's values and priorities. And so for us, for example, we have the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the first question of which is, Christian, what is the chief end of mankind? To glorify, the answer is to glorify and enjoy God forever. It's a simple question, simple answer, with profound implications that reverberate through every sphere of our life. And so the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism, Christian, what is your comfort in life and in death? And in summary, it is that I am not my own, but I have been bought at a price. For us as North Americans, that is not the word of comfort. Because we want to be our own. And so it's important for us to use catechisms to learn and be reminded of who we are 
That is what is sort of before us today as we enter into these four questions. In Jewish tradition, on the night before Passover, known as the Haggadah, four questions are asked, three by the children and one by the father. Traditionally, they are questions that work through the whys and wherefores of who we are as a Jewish people that are rooted in the history of God's mighty acts, most particularly in the mighty acts of the Exodus. But in some versions of this tradition, the questions can be classified as a legal question, as a scoffing question, and as a conduct question, and then... Fourthly, a question, summary type question, freely chosen by the Father. In terms of the drama represented in this liturgical exchange at this dinner time, the drama that is being played out is that the children come to the Father, on the one hand seeking wisdom, and then on the other hand scoffing, and on the other hand asking very basic questions foundational questions and they're playing out the drama of our own heart isn't that the truth we so long for the wisdom of the father and yet we balk at the wisdom of the father and we lose sight of the very basic things of the father and so Matthew has structured this exchange to follow that sort of pattern and so we begin with this legal question Verse 17, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? It's interesting to note who came. Disciples of the Pharisees together with the Herodians. Now, we don't recognize what's going on because we're not in the day, but those two people, they do not like each other. Because the Pharisees believe that their only hope is in perfect adherence to the law of God as presented by Moses, some 600-some-odd laws. The Herodians believe that their hope is in in throwing their lot in with the Romans. That's the only way we're going to survive and thrive, given our certain circumstances. They both believed the other was fatally flawed. And yet... In their opposition to Jesus, they are allied, and they, so they seek to trap him, and they ask him this question. So, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And if it were me and not Jesus, I would find myself looking back and forth between the Herodians and the Pharisees saying, Oh my, I'm trapped now. Because if I say Caesar's, I run afoul of the religious experts If I say that it is not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, I run afoul of the civil authorities. That language there, is it lawful, is does the law permit? Does God permit? Jesus is being set up, he's being baited to compromise either the authority of Caesar or the holiness of God. But the terms and the categories of the king 
rearrange and reapportion how we understand and organize and engage with and live faithfully in the world. Their question assumes a particular structure of the world. For those of us who are familiar with Abraham Kuyper and the legacy that we've inherited from him, this question is not about sphere sovereignty. It is not as though Caesar is a separate but equal power in the political sphere and Jesus or God is a, is a power in the religious sphere and they should just mind their own business. Which is, in fact, part of how the Pharisees and the Herodians are thinking about these things. Jesus says, you're not thinking about these things in the right ways. You've drawn the lines in the wrong places. The question has been posed as so many questions in our own day are posed in either or terms. Which most almost unavoidably forces us into explicitly choosing one while denying the other. Our culture, for example, seeks to trap us in this all the time. Are you a truth teller or do you love me? Answer that question. Are you on the side of justice or are you on the side of mercy? Are you for women's dignity and freedom of choice or are you for life? Alternatively, the question might get framed like this. Are you for women's dignity, freedom of choice, or abortion? Or as in this case, are you in favor of supporting Caesar or obeying God? Now, some of you have talked with me and have been frustrated enough with me to know that I love that kind of question because what's my answer? My answer is yes. Jesus is a little bit more gracious than I, a little bit less snarky. Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius, and Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? Well, it's Caesar's. Therefore, give back, is that language there. Give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And then he goes on to say, and give back to God the things that are God's. Jesus asks the question because the foundational category is this, not uh, not category, but the lens, is the image. The image. Like a name on a test or on a tax return, image communicates ownership and authority. Image. Who Or what bears the image of Caesar? The money that is distributed and is 
it is entrusted to the people of the Roman Empire, entrust that they are going to move it through the economy for the health of the empire. That's his prerogative as head of state. But here's the question. Who or what bears the image of the living God? You and me. Caesar himself. In that light, you see, all that we are and therefore all that we have are a trust from the living God himself. Give to Caesar the coins that Caesar requires. But give to God the life that is his. Therefore, give back to Caesar the riches he has loaned and give back to God all that he has loaned us for the flourishing of this world, not least our every breath. You see, living in that reality actually frees us and comforts us and strengthens us, and equips us, and trains us, and focuses us to live and love faithfully in the kingdoms of this world as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, which is why the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism asks, what is your only comfort in life and in death, that I am not my own? In this case, the obvious reality that folks are, are overlooking and therefore so easily forgetting, and so therefore so hard to talk about, is that God, with whose image we are stamped, is not just part of reality. It is not just one reality competing among many, but it is the reality by which all lesser realities are seen and understood. When we recognize that we bear the image of God and therefore we are and all that we have are His, then we recognize and we can rightly see who Caesar is, even if he cannot see it himself. As C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And so we move on to this second question. The same day the Sadducees came, and these guys come, talk about an, an, a picture of cynicism. They don't believe in the resurrection, but they test him on the resurrection. The Sadducees are what we might call the secularized liberal ones of their day. They do not believe in that which is unseen. Of course, that also means the resurrection, which is why they're sad, you see. <laughs> they come, Jesus having fielded the legal question, they come scoffing at him, mocking him with a question that they know or they believe is absolutely absurd, just so they can watch Jesus make a fool of himself publicly. 
The way they phrased the question makes that clear. Now there were seven brothers among us. They exaggerate as we often do in mocking humor. They exaggerate the situation because the the case can be made with a woman whose husband dies and her second husband dies. That's all you need to pose the question. But they exaggerate. They go on, seven brothers. How wildly absurd is this? You can hear people snickering in the crowd. Oh, yeah. This is going to be good. I've heard this. I've heard this play out in the comedy halls. I wonder how this is going to go. Jesus answers, you are wrong. And so begins to expose their foolishness, the absurdity of their thought. But be careful. Because in so doing, he exposes us. You are wrong. Because your question reveals the fact that you neither know scriptures nor the God of scriptures. How? First, the Old Testament is replete with references and evidences to the resurrection as we, have, as we will come to understand it more clearly or more fully in the resurrection of Jesus. But more than that, it also reveals their assumptions. You see, resurrection, biblically speaking and Christianly speaking, hear me, is not resuscitation. It is not that someone appears to be dead and then comes back to breathing and alertness. It is not resuscitation. Biblical biblical resurrection is not reincarnation. If anyone ever tells you that, oh yeah, you guys believe in resurrection, we believe in reincarnation, it's the same thing. It's not the same thing. They're radically, at the root, different. Reincarnation, for those of you who may not know, is dying and coming back to the same world as another person or is in another form. I personally believe that I'm going to come back as a lizard or something like that. No, I'm just teasing. I'm not, I'm not, that's just a joke. Resurrection is not reincarnation. Resurrection is not a question. Listen to me. It is not a matter of second chances. Contrary to popular opinion, Christianity is not the religion of second chances. It's the religion of failure and of forgiveness and of mercy and of substitution and of sacrifice. But it is not the religion of second chances. We got one chance and we failed. No, the resurrection is about the making of all things new. You and me 
and all creation. On the basis of this, these misunderstandings of resurrection, the question assumes that resurrection is simply life again in a world like this one. Marriage and all of those institutions will be just the same, and so the absurdity stands if that's true. Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? But you see, the resurrection is a completely new order. A, completely, a complete new order of all things. Restoration of all things. And so, in the resurrection, there will be neither marrying nor giving in marriage, but they are like the angels. They are not angels, they are like the angels. What exactly that means, what exactly that will look like and feel like, we don't know. But what we do know is that there is something about marriage that is instituted by God for the display of His glory and the exercise of His reign in this world. The display of His glory in every cubic inch. That is why the, the propagation and raising up of children is so central to marriage and family. It's not the only thing, but it is why it is so central. Because it is about bearing the glory of God's image into every cubic inch of reality. But there will be a day when that glory fills his world as the Shekinah filled the temple. And there will be no need for that. But moreover, the resurrection of the dead is about the power of God. They do not say it, but the Sadducees assume that the woman and her seven husbands are dead. And Jesus says, have you not read the word? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. We've heard that so many times. And there's this little change that goes on in our mind. Oh, he means that when Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were alive, he was their God. And we move on, thinking that we've understood things. But we've missed the most important part of it, even as the Sadducees have. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Brothers and sisters, do you understand that? That means that Abraham... Isaac and Jacob are alive today. They are gathered in the presence of our King today, beholding His glory with their eyes of flesh, even as we behold His glory with our eyes of faith. Because He is today our God, He is the God of the living and the dead. You see, the resurrection absolutely destroys the calculus by which we make so many of our decisions. How much time and energy is expended in, in our planning for and trying to put off death? Just think about it. How much money is invested in your trying to hedge your bets against death? 
But you see, brothers and sisters, you need to, have, you need to understand that the resurrection means that death is not final. It's death that is passing, not life. Life is what is final. Life extends well beyond the grave. You see, in this world, death, our culture has taught us that death is the calibrating reality. And so we find ourselves coming to near-death experiences, a car wreck or a bicycle accident, and he said, wow, I better count my days. I only have a few left. But the resurrection changes the calculations. It absolutely does away with the need for a bucket list. Because we're meant to live forever. And we will. Because the king reigns over an everlasting kingdom. He reigns in this world and the next. And brothers and sisters, you must understand that changes our calculus. It changes the way we think about so-called end-of-life issues. Because they're not end-of-life issues. They're transitionary issues. How do we transition from the, a life of faith to a life of sight? Those are the questions we need to be asking. The answers to which we need to be calibrating our lives on. This is why retirement doesn't seem to fit within a biblical world and life view. The question here is one of legacy. But Jesus is trying to help them understand, you don't understand the resurrection, because if you understood the resurrection, it would change how you understand legacy. Because legacy is about laying hold of the name by which you are made great. The great I am. The God of the living, not the God of the dead. We are way over, and so we will pick this up next week the Christ to consider next week. Let's pray.